From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bandib. This week, we have a conversation with Mansour Fahang, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Bennington College, about Donald Trump's refusal to certify Iran's compliance of the 2015 nuclear deal and its effect on global politics and on the Iranian people. Later in the program, we speak with Delnaz Abedi about her feature film Secret Fatwa, the untold story of the 1988 massacre, which uses a testimony of political prisoners to document the Iranian regime's cold-blooded massacre of thousands of political activists. Stay with us. On October 13th, Donald Trump refused to certify Iran's compliance with the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was intended to curtail Iran's nuclear program in return for the lifting of some economic sanctions. Trump's action came nearly two years after the agreement was reached between Iran and five permanent UN Security Council members, plus Germany and the European Union. In a speech from the White House, Trump said, quote, We will not continue down the path whose predictable conclusion is more violence, more terror, and the very real threat of Iran's nuclear breakout. End of quote. He added, quote, That's why I'm directing my administration to work closely with Congress and our allies to address the deal's many flaws so that the Iranian regime can never threaten the world with nuclear weapons. End of quote. Shahram Aramir spoke with Mansour Fahang, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Bennington College, about the meaning behind the administration's actions and their implications for the future of U.S. relations with Iran. First of all, Donald Trump was aware of anti-Iran sentiment in the American public. Therefore, his opposition to the nuclear deal was combined with opposition or contempt for the Iranian regime or Iran in general. So therefore, the decision he makes to reject the nuclear deal, at least in part, he intends to tell his constituency that is fulfilling his campaign promises. However, once he became president, experts almost unanimously told him that the deal is in the security interest of the region and the United States, and therefore it should be certified. His Secretary of State, his National Security Advisor, as well as the Secretary of Defense, all approved it. Therefore, the first time Iran, based on the reports, he was very reluctant to certify it the first time when he was president but he listened to the advisors and did it the second time he did it. But the third time, something even more important had happened in the Middle East. That was the military defeat of ISIS in both Iraq and Syria. We have to understand that since 2003, since the collapse of Saddam Hussein's regime, there has been a convergence of tactical or short-term interest between the United States and Iran. That is coming to an end as a result of the military defeat of ISIS. 
Therefore, his national security advisor, as well as the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, they all wanted to challenge Iran, the long-term objectives of Iran in the Middle East. Therefore, they decided to send the report of the International Atomic Energy Agency to the Congress. So they didn't deny it as he had promised the people. He didn't tear it apart because he had the power to do it. So we are no longer obligated to follow this. But I don't exactly know what that meant because the sanctions which were supposed to be lifted, they were supported by the United Nations Security Council and the European Union. It was a genuine international effort and the European states were doing it. However, the nuclear agreement became an instrument of challenging Iran in the region. But something else that is interesting to remember here is that in the beginning, two years ago in 2015, the Republicans had the majority in Congress. They were opposed to the deal. And in fact, a number of Democrats were opposed to the deal, including Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, who is the majority leader in the Senate. And they were opposed to the deal for two reasons. One was the pressure of Israel and opposition to whatever President Obama did. The second reason had to do with distrust of Iran. Two years have gone by, and according to all the reports, not only by International Atomic Energy Agency, but also by the intelligence communities of America and Europe, as well as Israel. It's very interesting. They all confirm that Iran has lived up to its obligations. Therefore, a number of people in the Senate have changed their position, including Chuck Schumer. Today, for example, there was an insult directed at Chuck Schumer because he had said that in the beginning he had some misgivings in opposing the nuclear agreement, and now he wants to reconsider. Then President Trump sent him a tweet and said, say that to Netanyahu. It's very interesting. So what the Congress does right now is the question, and including the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who was opposed to the deal in the beginning, but as a result of what I explained, the absence of Obama and confirmation of intelligence communities and International Atomic Energy Agency about Iran compliance, he has changed his mind. So the Congress wants to come up with something which will not be officially negation or rejection of the nuclear deal, but find ways of pressuring Iran economically and politically because of the challenge Iran is posing to American interests in the Middle East region. Professor Farhan, could you remind us what is enshrined in this nuclear agreement? Always from the very beginning, the American position, whether under Obama or President Bush, the American position was that we will not tolerate Iran's possession of nuclear weapons or Iran's capacity to make nuclear weapons. When they say we don't tolerate, it means if Iran continues to pursue that objective, military clash is inevitable. Therefore, the military threat from the very beginning was there, but at the same time, under President Obama, compromise on the part of the United States was also involved. So European countries and Obama succeeded in getting the cooperation of China and Russia and passing six resolutions in the United Nations Security Council with respect to the nuclear program of Iran and imposition of international sanctions. So in the face of this 
international consensus in pressuring you know, Iran. That was also combined with negotiations and direct contact. The threat was there, but the threat was not really the purpose. It was, in my opinion, the threat was simply a way of pressuring Iran to come to the negotiating table and be ready to do the kind of compromise that would make the agreement possible. The U.S. Secretary of State Tillerson is presently traveling in the Middle East. On uh, October 22nd, he met with Iraqi Prime Minister and the Saudi King, if I'm not mistaken, in what is considered the first session of a newly formed Saudi-Iraqi Coordination Council. Some U.S. media have described this council as an attempt to counter Iran's sway in Iraq. Farce news agency, which is run by the regime's revolutionary guards in Iran, and other state media in Iran have also seen Tillerson's trip as part of the U.S. efforts to form a bloc to counter Iran's influence in the region. What is your take on this? Also, given the ties between the current Iraqi leaders and the Iranian regime, how plausible is a scenario in which Iraq would distance itself from Iran and form some sort of a if you like, coalition with the Saudis? It's really a very complicated issue. The United States in 2003 invaded Iraq with the expectation that they will change the regime, create a pro-Western regime committed to free market, and then that will completely change the political orientation of the Middle East region. Well, there were unintended consequences in this scenario. And one important unintended consequence was the opening of Iraq to Iran. And it's very interesting to remember that at this time, as I mentioned in the beginning, there was once again a convergence of tactical interest between Iran and the Bush administration. Ahmad Chalabi, who received $25 million a year from the Congress of the United States to promote the idea of invading Iraq, Iraqi National Congress passed a bill to appropriate this money. He took some of this money to Iran. Chalabi spent quite a bit of time to Iran because all Iraqi leaders, both religious and secular members of the opposition groups to Saddam Hussein, they were living in Iran. So he was there and he spent part of that money giving it to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards to train and equip Iraqi soldiers who had either defected or had remained there since the Iran-Iraq war, they created the Al-Badr Brigade, 12,000 soldiers, equipped and completely trained by Iran. They were the only, besides American force, they entered Iraq days after the collapse of Saddam Hussein, and they eventually played a significant role in the ethnic cleansing of Baghdad, the anti-Sunni ethnic cleansing, and Iran was the major player in creating 4 million refugees in various Iraqi cities, overwhelming majority Sunnis. There were also some Turkmenians and Armenians, and they were the social base of ISIS. So when we look at, as a result of that, Iran has come to be a major player in the region, and in Syria, Cooperation between Iran and Russia has saved Bashar Assad regime. And therefore, Iran, for the first time in modern times, Iran has influence in Baghdad, in Damascus, in South Lebanon. In my opinion, 
Iran is very much interested in transforming the Shi'i militias of Iraq into the revolutionary guards of Iraq. That's exactly their plan is. And this is obviously a challenge to Israel, to Saudi Arabia, to American interests in the region. And because of this fantastic success, the Iranians have had the success, which was largely the result of American invasion of of Iraq, they have influence and they have very intimate relationship with Iraq. In other words, Iraq depends on Iran. The only country that Iraqi rulers today can completely trust because of religious affinity, ethnic Shi'i religious affinity between them. And here, when Tillerson is asking the Iraqi to ask to do away with the Shi'i militias in Iraq, they said they are patriotic Iraqis. And the opposition to Tillerson's statement and request from the Iraqis was unanimous in Iraq. So that is not going to happen. And this confrontation, the extent to which Iran wants to continue its influence in the region, Saudi Arabia and Israel are obviously concerned. And one very important point we have to add is that Iran is constantly threatening Israel calling it a cancer that has to be removed from the region. Iran is not a military threat to Israel. However, right-wing people in Israel, the head of Netanyahu, they always broadcast and repeat Iran's threat against Israel because that's a fantastic way to get the popular base of the right-wing people in Israel, particularly in the secular movement, that is, Iran's propaganda serves the most right-wing elements in Israel and has made it extremely difficult for the peace movement, for the leftists, to challenge Netanyahu. And Netanyahu, as we know, is very close to significant members of U.S. Congress, both Republicans and Democrats. Remember that for the first time in U.S. history, the Congress of the United States invited the head of the state of another country to come to Washington and give an honorary lecture in Congress against President of the United States, which was in relationship to the nuclear deal. So what the United States wants to do today is really extremely difficult to ask Iraqis to severe their relationship with Iran because that's not they're going to do and Iran's influence in Iraq is very significant economically, culturally, politically and militarily. What will happen in the future to what extent this influence is going to be lasting or permanent or institutionalized remains to be seen. But at the moment and in the short run, the challenge facing the United States is the growing influence of Iran in the Middle East region. Professor Farhang, APAC has embraced Mr. Trump's statement about the certification of Iran's nuclear deal. And after his speech, in a video statement released in English, actually, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said, I congratulate President Trump for his courageous decision today. He boldly confronted Iran's terrorist regime. These are his remarks. Then he added that President Trump has just created an opportunity to fix this bad deal to roll back Iran's aggression and to confront its criminal support of terrorism, unquote. He has always been against this nuclear deal with Iran. What's behind this? What do you think is driving this animosity towards... uh, Regardless of the nuclear deal, Israel is very much interested in persuading everyone in the region, as well as America and Europe, that the real threat to 
Middle Eastern stability is Iran. And they do this because they want to remove attention from the Palestinian issue. And to some extent, they have actually succeeded. If Iran is the major threat to Saudi Arabia or to the Persian Gulf, the Arab states, then the idea of Palestinian deprivation and the oppression of Palestinians and settlement on the West Bank and so forth, they have become marginalized. Even if there is no action against Iran, Netanyahu and right-wing people in Israel are very much interested in exaggerating Iran's threat and keeping it on the front page or on the television news stories all over the board. And regrettably, the Iranian regime, the reactionary nature of the Iranian regime and the ideological nature of the Iranian regime is providing enough propagandistic evidence for them to do that. Saudi Arabia is actually, for all practical purposes, cooperating with Israel. It's not simply the opposition to the nuclear deal that is motivating Netanyahu or AIPAC or other right-wing groups in the United States. Whatever the right-wing Israelis say, there are groups in Washington who automatically and without any question approve it and echo it in the United States. What they really want is to portray Iran as perpetual threat to the security of the region, and therefore the Arab states are not going to pay much attention to what is happening to the Palestinians. This is Netanyahu's strategy. Otherwise, experts, even in Israel, today in the New Yorker website, which will probably be in the magazine, there is an article about Uzi Arad, who was the former head of research at Mossad and head of the Netanyahu's own National Security Council. He's no longer working with him. He was in Washington lobbying Congress of the United States to approve the nuclear deal. It's fascinating that even experts in Israel and peace movement and leftists in Israel all want this agreement to be recognized as legitimate because they think Iran has lived up to its obligations. But the right-wing people in Israel here and elsewhere, they seem to be using the situation in order to perpetuate the crisis and the confrontation. And to be clear, this is not merely about Iran's nuclear program. It's about a change in calculus of power and a quest for regional hegemony. Right. This is true for both the Israelis and the Saudi Arabian regime. Exactly. Except that their motives are very different. Saudi Arabia is sure. not the autocratic regime. Saudi Arabia is very insecure. No question about it. Extremely insecure. So Iran's threat against Saudi Arabia could impact the decision-making and generate fear in that country. In Israel, it is being used as a tool in order to advance the priorities of Netanyahu and his right-wing and settlement movement allies. They have very different motives, but they are working together. Yes, the politics of the Middle East has gone through sea change. And in this sea change, which began in 2003, the question of whether or not Iran's influence in the Middle East has anything to do with the national interest of our people, that's entirely a different matter. Of the Iranian people. Exactly. Security, welfare, and prestige of the Iranian people. The Iranian regime is acting in such a way that is a complete violation of Iran's national interest. Iran has given 
based on the unofficial records. Regrettably, there is no reliable official source to that, but newspapers like Independent and Financial Times, that in this regard, they are pretty reliable. They maintain that Iran, over the past six years, has given Syria over $40 billion in economic and military aid, plus all the expenses they have done generally in recruiting Afghan, Pakistani, and Iraqi young people that Human Rights Watch recently has issued a fascinating report about it, training them and sending them to Syria to fight for Bashar Assad. All these expenses, human costs, what do they have to do with Iran's national interest? Absolutely nothing. And he has created quite a bit of resentment among the public in Iran. And what they do in Iran, they say, oh, if we don't fight him there, then we have to fight him in Tehran or Shiraz or Tabriz. They're referring to the uh, Daesh or ISIS and, you know, other... Yes. That's what they're... But the fact is that they did fight even the forces that were not affiliated with Islamists in Syria, the other opposition forces too, right? Exactly. Except that they're focusing, even Zarif, just the other day, in response to Telemans asking the Iraqis to put an end to the Shi'i militias and they should either join the Iraqi army or be completely abolished as a militia group. Zarif responded to that. He said, we have sacrificed, we have been fighting ISIS for independence and sovereignty of Iraq, and therefore Iraqis need us. So this is the argument they use, and part of the reasoning, or at least the intention, is to convince Iranian people that what Iran is doing in Syria, or in Iraq, or in southern Lebanon, is directly related to the national security of Iraq. But this is pure propaganda. It has absolutely nothing to do with reality. So the motives and consequences of Iran's foreign policy are really a different topic. Iran's decision-making in the region, in my opinion, has absolutely nothing to do with Iran's national interest, but everything to do with the ambition of the Iranian rulers exporting. They were going back from day one of the revolution. When we read Khomeini, the revolutionary guards, Saudi Arabia is illegitimate, Persian Gulf states are illegitimate, except that they do it in the name of Islam, but in reality, they are actually working with non-state actors, the Shi'i actors. That's really a different topic, that exactly what is in it for the Iranian people and Iranian society in the foreign policies of Iran in the region. The recent events in Kirkuk were the Iraqi forces re-entered Kirkuk and took it back from the Kurdish control. It really came about through some collaboration with the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards, particularly Mr. Soleimani. So Iran really has a strong hand even among certain groups within Iraqi Kurdistan. No question. From the very, even before that, Iran has had relationship with the Kurdistan. Some Iraqi Kurds have been close to Iran, particularly under Saddam. But this time, Soleimani went there based on the reports we read in the media that he actually had some discussion with Kurdish leaders not to resist the takeover of Kirkuk. But it's very interesting. Once again, the United States and Iran were on the same side. Exactly. The United States nominally, they said, oh, we are neutral. But in reality, Iraqis would not have invaded Kirkuk without permission of the United States. No question about that. This animosity between Iran and the United States since 2003 has been a very paradoxical and ironic 
enmity. It's not a conventional confrontation of two powers. It could become in the future. But in the past 15 years, they have cooperated with each other on a variety of ways. Mr. Soleimani is one of the major commanders of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, which were singled out by Mr. Trump in his October 13 statement about Iran's nuclear deal. And he mentioned that basically Congress should consider sanctions or taking actions against Iran's military forces. I'm sure he was referring to sanctions. And why would he single that force out? Right now, because I would say primarily because of the challenge Iran is posing to American interests, to Saudi and Israelis, you know, and all that, to the region in general, they want to put pressure, both economic and political pressure. That is, once again, they want to try to isolate Iran politically, impose sanctions on Iran so that Iran's economic development will be limited or frustrated because, according to American position, the more resources at the disposal of Iran, the greater the possibility to continue the policies in the Middle East and expand, increase their influence. So they want to put pressure on Iran, sanctioning because revolutionary guards, based on various statistics, this organization controls about 40% of the Iranian economy. Millions of people work for this organization and its variety of economic activities. If they can get European help to impose sanctions on revolutionary guards from American point of view, it is one way of pressuring Iran economically. But we see contradiction. It's yesterday, Mr. Trump says, we have no objection to European trade with Iran. Let them make money, the exact phrase he used. Tillerson in the Middle East, he's asking the European states not to invest in Iran, not to establish normal trade relationship with Iran because it would strengthen Iran's ability in the Middle East region and it would be a source of insecurity. We don't really know exactly. But the Congress, the White House, the national security staff, to what extent they're going to find the kind of sanctions which will not be interpreted as violation of the nuclear agreement and yet try to pressure the Europeans to participate in this kind of sanction, whether or not they are going to end up doing secondary sanctions and making it difficult for European companies and corporations to choose between Iran and the United States. That would be a critical decision both for Europe and Iran. But if they do that, for all practical purposes, that means the end of the nuclear agreement. And if that means Iran will return to enrichment of uranium, Remember that Iran exported 98% of its enriched uranium outside the country. And it is committed not to enrich uranium before 5%, which is necessary for peaceful scientific purposes. Now, if as a result of secondary sanctions and pressure on revolutionary guards, Iran decides to return to pre-nuclear deal activities with respect to its facilities and enrichment of uranium and so forth, that would really create an extremely difficult and dangerous situation. To be clear, Europeans ostensibly have been critical of Mr. Trump's statements regarding Iran's nuclear deal. There doesn't seem to be any 
divisions within the European bloc on this issue that seem to be fully supporting the nuclear deal of 2015. That's true. The governments. The yes. governments and the governments will continue to oppose that. But if there is secondary sanction, it will European corporations. If they are going to invest in Iran, particularly long-term job-producing investment that the Iranians are very interested in, they want security. In the absence of security or the threat of military conflict between Iran and the United States, they would be very reluctant to do that. At the moment, it's an open-ended game to what extent. If the purpose is, as they say, to fix the nuclear agreement, it may well be that in a year or two, at least for the next 15 years, Iran is totally committed not to engage in the kind of nuclear activities that would enhance its capability to make nuclear weapons, at least for 15 years. Well, if they wait five years or three years, they would be able to, in a more peaceful environment, they would be able to renegotiate. And perhaps if they have some questions about the nuclear deal, as they said, they could fix it. But that's not really the purpose of Trump's position at the present time. When they refer to the spirit of the deal, it's a meaningless metaphor. It's simply a way of saying that the nuclear agreement didn't have anything to do. I have read the whole thing carefully. There is absolutely nothing in it which contains Iran's activities in the Middle East region in a political, economic, or cultural manner. These activities could be legitimate concern of both the region and the United States. But response to these concerns shouldn't have anything to do with the nuclear agreement based on the letter of the agreement itself. And even the issue of Iran's ballistic missile program is not really covered by this agreement, is it? Not at all. Not yeah. at all. In comparison, when it comes to military capability, the amount of money Iran is spending on the military is peons in comparison with what the Persian Gulf Arab states or Saudi Arabia are spending. Iran is not a military threat to anyone in the region. And Iran is a reactionary, religious, theocratic state. It's an enemy of democratic norms and civility. And yet Iran, over the past 38, 39 years, has not used military force to invade another country or to violate the national borders. In Iraq and Syria, we could be very critical of Iran, both with respect to the consequences of their action as well as the massive cost for the Iranian people. But it's the Iraqi government and Syrian government that invite Iran. The Hezbollah in southern Iran also has decent relationship with not only the Hezbollah, but also with the Lebanese government. So Iran's involvement in these countries is by invitation or by complete satisfaction of the sovereign states, as they are known internationally. As so, illegitimate some of these regimes may be, of right, course. <laughs> but this exaggerating Iran's military capability is simply a way of creating fear in the region. Sure and benefiting from it. Shifting gears a little bit, right now it seems like Mr. Trump and probably the Congress may be looking at uh, new sanctions on Iran. And there is an extensive literature on how economic sanctions, particularly under an authoritarian regime, causes suffering for the most vulnerable sections of the population. Can you talk about that? And what were the effect of sanctions, for instance, we know how devastating they were to Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Can you talk about 
the impact of sanctions on Iranians before this nuclear deal was reached in 2015? There is no question that the sanctions, particularly in respect to monetary and banking sanctions, before the nuclear deal, Iran had $150 billion credit in a variety of countries, in China, in India, in South Korea, in Japan, and elsewhere, because they had purchased all from Iran and they could not pay it back because of the secondary sanctions. There is no question that sanctions could limit Iran's capabilities with respect to its activities in the region, but the real suffering of the sanctions are the people, people in the country. A new class has been created in Iran, a new governing class, and class division in Iran has actually deepened in the country. The population has expanded from 35 million in 1979 to 75, close to 80 million dollars today, and massive expansion of the urban poor in Tehran, Isfahan, Tabriz, Mashhad, and so forth. So here, when we say sanctions, Iran is not going to be able to receive the, that because that is the major source of income for the country, export of oil. If this money is going to be blocked and frozen as a result of secondary sanction, if it happens, first and foremost, the Iranian people will suffer while the ruling class, the new governing class, might have some difficulties in terms of activities in the region, but they will not suffer the black market, a variety of ways of even exporting oil, even Saddam Hussein did during the, the sanctions. So the sanctions, the victims of sanctions are first and foremost the Iranian people. It doesn't mean that the government is not affected by it. It is too. Professor Fahang, uh, last but not least, what appears to be missing from most analyses on the Iranian situation on this nuclear deal is the role of Iranian people and their agency. The protest movement of 2009 shook the Iranian regime and made it feel even more insecure vis-a-vis both internal and external forces. Do you think this internal threat from its own population was a pivotal factor for the regime to reach a compromise on its nuclear program in 2015, where it seemed like the regime as a whole endorsed the deal in spite of all the noises and everything, verbal opposition being given to the deal. It seemed like there was a consensus among the ruling bloc. If so, is that still a factor present in the regime's calculation in terms of any sort of agreement with the major world powers, including the United States? Given that, would they be willing to give more concessions? First of all, I would say that threat of the United States. Obama was very creative with respect to it. He made it abundantly clear, even during his campaign, before the, even the very first time in 2008, during his campaign, he was the only candidate who proposed negotiation with Iran. And it took the Iranian regime five, six years before he, they accepted his proposals engaged in serious negotiation. At that time, because of Obama's conciliatory and moderate position toward Iran, the regime could not use American threat as the enemy is threatening us and therefore using that to suppress dissidents inside the country. Today, it's the reverse. This rhetoric against the regime, this threat against the regime is actually helping the autocratic, violent nature of the clerical regime 
to tell the Iranian people that we face this threat from the outside. So they suppress any dissident in the name of confronting or facing the enemy without. In that sense, right-wing people, Trump is at least in the short run helping the most radical elements within the Iranian regime. This division, reformist versus the radicals or the heartlanders in Iran is for real in the sense that the new governing class, particularly the people who have benefited from the system economically, they do want to have normal economic and trade relations with the rest of the world, particularly Europe. They do want to invite, as Rouhani has said over and over, they are interested in attracting international capital to Iran because they see the incredible needs of the country. And if these needs are frustrated, then it will threaten the regime. But what helps the radicals is the threat from without. There is an enemy, we are facing the enemy. Therefore, any kind of opposition, any kind of critical perspective within the country is going to be condemned and branded as assisting the enemy. So in other words, at the present time, and I would say in the short run, the position of the Trump administration is actually helping the most radical characters in the Iranian regime and making life difficult for the people who are more interested, at least in normalization of Iran's economic and trade relations with the rest of the world. I should also add that when it comes to internal matters, when it comes to human rights, when it comes to democratic norms, when it comes to putting an end to the policy, to the constitutional position of the regime, dividing the Iranian people between insiders and outsiders, there is not a darn's worth of difference between Rouhani and Zarif and the revolutionary guards of Khamenei. Only when it comes to foreign policy, and that has to do with economic class interest, that there is definitely a division within the regime but the position of the Trump administration is bridging that division and giving all the power and influence to the more radical elements within the regime. Mansour Fahang is Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Bennington College in Vermont. He spoke with Shahana Maramir. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. In the summer of 1988, following a decree by Ayatollah Khomeini, Iran's supreme leader at the time, thousands of political prisoners were executed in a matter of few months, the majority of them in the first few weeks following the decree. Many years later, Delnaz Abedi decided to learn filmmaking 
so she could tell the story of those days and what happened to thousands of innocent people who were arrested for wanting to protect the young revolution and its aspirations. It was an extraordinary period in our lives. Political prisoners were all set free. Dozens of political groups emerged. For my generation who had never experienced freedom, this was a dream come true. But our dream was short-lived. New position of Islamic law here has started with an order to women to cover their heads in government offices. Day and night, guards roam the streets, hunting for activists. Even the possession of a leaflet became a crime. I dreaded reading newspapers. Every day, a new list. The result of this effort is her film, Secret Fatwa, the untold story of the 1988 massacre. The film tells the story of the summary executions of thousands of political prisoners in the summer of 1988 as part of a crackdown on political dissent in Iran. To this day, the massacre, which took the lives of over 5,000 young political prisoners, is not officially acknowledged by the Iranian regime. Perhaps your listeners are familiar. There was a fatwa for Salman Rushdie that Khomeini issued and condemned him to death because of his book. Six months prior to this fatwa, he issued the fatwa for Iran's political prisoners. And the story starts in the summer of 1988. Prisons were still full of political prisoners. They were very young. They were mostly politicized during the 1979 revolution. And they had already seen one mass execution. They were arrested in the early 80s. Many of their friends were executed and they received sentences. So some of them had been in prison for as long as seven years. Some were even ready to get released. Suddenly in July 1988, prisons go into a lockdown. That means no visitations, even communication amongst prison blocks were blocked. So you can imagine that families of the prisoners were desperate. They were running everywhere looking to see what's happening. Nobody gave them answers. And five months later, they are summoned one by one, not in a group. And they are given a back and told that their prisoner was executed. No explanation, no body, no last will. So to this day, families are looking for answers. And I think the story speaks to me and was very important to me because many of the victims were my friends. I know some of the families. I've listened to their pain again and again. So I started by creating slideshows and helping to have meetings and inviting the survivors to give talks. 
But at some point, I realized that this story is very important to go all over the world. And the best medium for that is film. So, so when did that happen for you? <laughs> it was 2004. That's a long time ago. And actually, my profession was computer software engineer. Mm. And it was perhaps a good thing that I got laid off and... For a while, I thought I should do something that I'm very passionate about. So I learned filmmaking and started to work on this film, and it took many years. I wanted it to be accurate, to really show the pain of the survivors and the families, and a bit of history about Iranian activists who participate in the revolution. These are the victims. And who were they? what happened, also to give a sense of the Islamic regime. What is it like to live under the Islamic Republic? What is it like to be in its prisons? What is its justice system like? You fled Iran in 1984, and as you said, some of the people who spent many years in those prisons were your friends. Were any of your friends amongst those executed in 1988? Yes, both in 1981 and 1988. The majority of prisoners were really young. When they were executed, they were in their 20s. So that means when they were arrested, some of them were teenagers. I myself, I was a first-year college student when the revolution happened. I was not political. My family was not political. But the revolution politicized me mm. and politicized my generation, I can say. So with a lot of youthful energy, we all participated. We were not educated because we were all raised in a dictatorship. But there was great, great energy, a great potential to make a difference. Unfortunately, we got a regime that was worse than the previous one, <laughs> a theocracy which not only took away the freedoms, but also encroached on our personal lives and on women's rights and any rights that we had before. Why did you decide to leave Iran in 1984? Well, when I look back, I'm really amazed at how optimistic I was. The crackdown happened in 1981. So all the activists, we went underground. But many of us were still hopeful. I remember I used to say, Iranian people won't accept this regime. So I stayed. I stayed until six years after the revolution and, and tried to make a difference. But eventually the circle around me got closer and closer, and I realized they were very close to arrest me. I fled. Mm -hmm. You interview political prisoners from various tendencies, and you overlay their testimony with reenactments of the events inside the prison. You interviewed five former political prisoners. Some of them thought they would be also executed, but they escaped the executions, and fortunately they survived to tell the story. What did they tell you about their experiences inside prison, and how did you use those experiences to really create a map of what was going on inside Gohardash prison and Evin prison in the 80s? 
When I started making the film, more than a decade had passed, and it took a while for the survivors to start talking. You know, it took a while for them to get released and then flee the country and then feel comfortable to talk. When I started to make the film, I was lucky because many of them had already started to talk. I have two survivors that I've interviewed in the film that are talking for the first time. But the other three, they have published books, they had talked, so I had a lot of information to start with. And their stories were just amazing. So the challenge for me was, this is a film, this is not a lecture, so how do I show all these stories with no budget and no experience? This was my first film, in a way that I can convey their emotions, experience, the moments, both for the survivors and the families. Hmm. Just happened that at that point I watched a film called Dogwell by Lars von Trier. Yes. In this film, the set is half built, even less than half built. Like a building has a window but no walls. So at the beginning, it it's shocks you. It's kind of a make believe city. Yeah. So at the beginning, a little bit shocking, but interesting. But after a while, I noticed, well, I forgot that this is a make-believe. I really believe the scene. So that really suited my little budget. Mm. <laughs> so with the help of friends, many friends in the community, at that point, it became a community project. So friends, including yourself, all came together. We built sets like for a cell, what is important? And it happened a few blocks from you know, KPFA, Berkeley the media Community sense. Media. Media I'm so grateful to them. So Berkeley Community Media let me use their facilities. And then I'd taken classes at Vista Community College, which is also local. You know, my teachers, Rachel Mercy Simpson and my classmates, they came to help. Rachel did the cinematography. She introduced me to a lighting designer. Hmm. And it just became a community project. So for four weekends, we went to the Berkeley Community Media and we assembled our sets, friends and family and my children and my aunts and uncles. They all came to act and I could say 90% of the people didn't have any acting experience. Mm -hmm. I was amazed at the talent that I saw. It was so easy to direct. And I think it was because everyone felt a connection to the subject, especially those who have had their family members executed, those who have had prison experience. So the experience of creating these reenactments was, for me, it was a reward mm. that I could also, the other part of it was that these people who came to help, they believed in different ideologies, sometimes, you know, conflicting ideologies, but nobody cared anymore. So share with us some of these testimonies that has stayed with you after all these years. This crime that happened is not the first crime of the Islamic Republic of Iran. But I think it is very unique. And the piece that moved me 
and shocked me was that the prisoners were not told that they were going to be retried with just a few questions to mm-hmm. read their minds, to guess their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And if the judges guessed that they are still abiding by their beliefs, they were gone. But they were not told this is a retrial. So as one of the survivors says in the film, it was very much like an inquisition. But in a medieval inquisition, the person were told, if you answer this, we're going to kill you. If you answer that, you can go. But these prisoners were lied to. They were not told this is a retrial. So many of them, as again in the film it says, didn't know that they were going to be killed until the noose came over their head. And that's, I think, unprecedented in the history of state crimes. And that's why I say it's a very unique state crime. I start the film with my encounter with an old friend, Mihan, who has lost her husband in this massacre. We were both activists in Iran, so that's how I know her. And when we met, we were so happy that we found each other alive. But unfortunately, she told me that her husband, Reza, was executed. There are some sentences that when Mihan talked to me about, it was like a big bang. She said when Reza was arrested, they had a 15-day-old son. So the son never got to see his father. But Mihan kept the memory alive because Reza got 20-year sentence. And Mihan told me that she would tell stories for years, for seven years to her son that his father is going to come back, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. Imagine what the children of these prisoners had endured. And one day, Mihan has to tell her son, no, it's all over. How could she explain this to this kid? Mm. So actually, the theme of the festival, United Nations Association Film Festival, which accepted my film, and it's going to be its world premiere this year, is Respect. I was thinking, wow, my film is very appropriate because the bottom line is we should have respect for every life. Reza was some mother's son. Reza Mm -hmm. was some kid's father. His loss affected so many families. To this day, Mihan is devastated, looking for answers, and really never recovered from that loss. So respect for life. And another group that really has been looking for answers and at minimum trying to find out where their sons and daughters have been buried are the mothers of those political prisoners. What the mothers have done is amazing. They were not told where their loved ones were buried, but by accident they find a mass grave in a graveyard called Khovaran, which the Islamic Republic had created for the Marxists and for the atheists. So when families go to this graveyard, they one day, very close to the date of the prison lockdown, they find this mass grave. And they were brave enough. They go back the next day to take pictures. Well, 
families still don't know really if their kid is there, mm-hmm. but they assume that it has become a symbol for this massacre. And every year they have held ceremonies there. Every year they had encountered aggression from the authorities. For a while, they had shut it down. They were going to shut it down for good, but families persisted and they have started going back there. Unfortunately, they are leaving us, but I think the next generation, it's very hopeful that they are now picking up the question. They are being adamant that we want answers, what mm-hmm. happened to our parents. The world premiere of The Secret Fatwa, the untold story of the 1988 massacre in Iran, will be happening at this year's United Nations Association Film Festival on Saturday, October 28th at 1.40 p.m. at Stanford University at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies in Encino Hall. For more information, please visit unaff.org or vomina.org. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.